in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. Welcome to episode 6. You know the best part of my day is hearing from you. To get to the blog, I go to http colon www.ancientromerefocused.org. Just remember, it's one word. Or you could send me an email at rob at ancientromerefocused.org. Now remember, Ancient Rome Refocused is one word on the address. But you know, what I really like for you to do is call in. Do this and I will definitely put you on the show. You can bring up historical points, talk about what interests you, tell me about a visit to a museum or a visit you made to an historical site, or just talk, say anything, I don't care. The phone line is now open. Get those cell phones out and punch in 206-424-0069. The number is 206-424-0069. You got under five minutes, so figure out what you're going to say beforehand. But please call. Hi, Rob. This is Michelle from Newark, New Jersey. I've I've been listening to your podcast, especially the one on time travel. I really don't want to go to ancient Rome, and I'll tell you exactly why. I'm African American. Chances are, I would end up being a slave there. Not a terribly good thing. Also, as a woman. Women were not treated terribly well at all. And while you mentioned things like rape and things like that, not my kind of thing. Now, I do cook, and I actually know how to cook without modern appliances, but still, not the greatest thing. And the fact that you can't keep food very well, I don't think so. Plus, the clothes were horrible, absolutely horrible, and they were expensive. So you'd have one dress, and you'd be in rags half the time. I think the biggest reason why I would not want to go to ancient Rome, even though there's a part of me that would like to see the aqueducts and all that kind of thing, is that it was an incredibly dangerous place. And I really would not want to be exposed to that. Um, I don't think most of us would. I don't think most of us are hardy enough. Morality was different then, too. What was considered acceptable behavior, very, very different. And as a former anthropologist, one thing I know, if you don't understand the culture, you can get in a lot of trouble very, very quickly. Everything from what are normal sexual positions to how long you can stare at somebody to what's considered odd or not odd. All of those things would make life pretty difficult if I had to go back to ancient Rome. So, no, no time travel for me. Thank you very much. Bye. And now, episode six, titled, I'm the Emperor and You're Not. An old man sits by a fire. He's blind. 
and his hands are shriveled, twisted by arthritis. His skin is white and wrinkled. He is a soothsayer, a reader of the future, one of the many employed by the present emperor, and he is the best. He is attended by two slaves. His every need is met. He is fed when he is hungry. If he wants to go somewhere, he is led there by a slave, and he is read to by a silver-tongued slave, any book that he desires. In fact, all he has to do is ask for it, and it's brought to the door. The old man speaks. The door. Attend the door. The slave does not ask how he knows. He just goes, and he opens it. And on the other side is a small boy with his arms filled with scrolls. In a few minutes, the boy is led into the room. By the look on his face, he looks terrified. Usually this would be just a delivery from the libraries of Rome, histories, plays, and scientific works. Nothing can be heard in the room save the fire. The boy does not know what to do. He stands there awkwardly, holding his delivery, looking back and forth, looking back and forth to the marbled bench or chair, trying to decide which one to set his delivery down so that he can run out the door to safety. The old man speaks. Emperor, set them down anywhere. The boy obeys. Emperor, the old man says, I am honored. I was told that you want to see the future, to read the flames. The boy shakes his head. I am not the emperor, he says. All the boy wants to do is put the books down and go. The old man frightens him. The boy is a library assistant. No emperor stands in this room. Sit, the old man says. The boy still stands. Sit, the old man says again. The boy looks scared. Sit, and I shall give you a coin. Should I not pay you, the boy says, wondering why the old man would pay him when it's his fortune that is about to be told. Old man, I am not the emperor. I am a boy called Libra from the library stacks. I do nothing but sort and read and deliver the best books to those in the Palatine. A slave comes out of the darkness and offers the boy a chair. A silver tray of sweets is offered, and the boy gives in to the temptation of honey cakes laid out before him. The old man stares into the flames. A slave drops a dollop of powder upon the fire. The following is what the old man says. Emperor, you were given away as a baby. It was done at night, handed to a slave and carried down the street in a basket, a face covered up by an unrolled scroll, a blanket of papyrus to hide your face. If you were found, you would have been killed. The old man listens for the boy to say something. The boy's eyes go wide. The old man continues to speak, his eyes seeing impossible things, for he has the white, milky blindness the Greeks called the cataracts. Nothing but white marbles sit in those sockets. So how can he see anything, the boy wonders. The old man continues to speak. The emperor had been assassinated, and anyone that had his blood died as well. You were given away in the middle of the night. So an obscure friend of the family, an unofficial uncle, became your father, a simple scholar who was in charge of the libraries of Rome. You grew up in plain sight at the Palatine Hill and the palace of the emperor. You grew up following your uncle father around the stacks. You crawled, waddled, then took your first step between history and science. 
Library dust was breathed into your nostrils early. As a toddler, books were your mattress. And as a boy, books are your chief entertainment. When you were old enough, you discovered the joys of Homer and the philosophy of Epictetus, and imagined traveling the world as you pored over the maps in the geography lessons of Strabo. Every day, no matter the year or month, you straightened the piles to and read the words and dreamed of traveling the world until the day of the running feet. The slave puts more powder on the flame. The old man speaks again, and this time he sees something of things to come. Now he predicts the future, not the past. One day the soldiers will rush the doors of the library. You will hear the hobnailed sandals rush up the marble steps. Librarians, philosophers, and historians shall run from the exits and hide in the stacks, as if a section devoted to Livy shall protect them from the Praetorian sword. Your uncle father shall hear his name called out by the attacking soldiers. Lucius Acritus, stand where you are. Your uncle father shall stand by a great window and a marble bench. Immediately he shall thrust his face in front of yours. Under the bench and don't come out, he will say. You will do as you are told, and from your hiding place you will see your uncle's feet. He does not run, but others run about him for the exits. You shall shiver in fear under the bench. From this place you see three sets of feet stopped in front of him, and a voice rings out. Lucius Acritus, where is the boy? What boy, he shall ask. Someone slaps your uncle father across the face. Lucius Acritus, I won't ask again. You know what that means. Give us the information or we will plunge a sword in your belly. Fear shall run up your back and you will hear your uncle father lie to the soldier. I do not know where he is. His voice is such that you know he expects to die. Immediately you shout from underneath your hiding place. No! You shout. In fact, you shall scream it. It echoes through the high walls. You scramble up, ready to meet your fate. I am here! You shout. You stand in front of the Praetorians, ready to die. To your surprise, the guards break out in smiles. The high walls of the Library of Rome ring with the following words. Hail Caesar! The truth is, you never expected to be emperor. In your world, before the day of the running feet, you would have been more likely to be hit by a bolt from the god Jupiter than for the mantle of the imperial purple being laid upon your shoulders. Your world changed after that. Two hundred soldiers show up at your door and escorts lead you to the imperial palace. Most will be Romans, but many long-haired Germans. Strange. Before you even begin your reign, your horoscope shall be charted by the priest of Jupiter. You push forward, eager to know the results, the cut liver, the watching of the stars, and the priest smile at you to tell you that the next year will be of great consequence. What does that mean? You shall ask. The priest will say, The gods are in favor of your reign. We invoke the prayers of Jupiter and have seen clean flesh from the knife. 
The stars are aligned and the auspices confirm that you shall wear the Imperial Purple for years. All that from a liver? You ask in amazement. The doors to the palace open and this begins the year of whispers. For everywhere you go, your world is surrounded by whispers. People nod their heads together and talk about you. Enter a room, whispers. Enter the bath, whispers. Walk down a corridor, the whispers follow you. On the floor is a map of the world. You stand on the ocean and look down in awe. I own all this, you will say? The old senator corrects you. For the people of Rome. Of course, you say. And then you skip across the sea to Egypt. This as well? The old senator will explain. This is your personal protectorate. All gold and wheat that comes from it are yours and belong to you. You are the richest man in the world. Build my stepfather a house you shall command. It is done in five months. I want to see the remains of Cleopatra you shall order. The remains frighten you. They are old, ash-like, and they smell sweet like forgotten time. Put 5,000 more books in the Library of Rome, you shall order. For a time before the new annex was built, the amount of books block out the sun at every window. Your uncle father is busy for many years. Your world shall be magic, every wish granted, every passing whim and order. There he goes, quiet, quiet, he's in the room, he's in the room, he's coming this way, he's coming this way. Five years it will take for you to understand that the people fear you. The only interest in you is self-interest. You are the center of the world, and thus if you sneeze, the world quakes. Your advisors tell you not to look for friends. He says that you will be lonely for the rest of your life. That people will try to use your power for their own ends. When you are 18, you become friends with the head of the Praetorian Guard, a man that likes Homer and can play a flute and teaches the art of using a sword. His name is Marcus Arrakis. You heap rewards upon him, vast sums of money, and what started as a friendship, true friendship, ends with his loyalty being bought by a rival faction. The slave clerks come to you with information that he conspires for your death. And after a sleepless night, you wash your face in the morning, and then sign the warrant for his death. priest of Jupiter shall charge your horoscope again. They tell you this is the year of great things. All that from a liver, you shall say in response, remembering your first words. The benefit of being emperor is power. One day you shall walk past a foul-smelling swamp in the city. You will complain about it, and soon a thousand slaves will drain it. You talk about the benefit of marble over brick, and a hundred buildings shall gleam with it in a few months. You wonder if a road should be built to the sea, a port of Ostia, and military engineers, freedmen, and slaves shall be seen leaving the city to begin the project. You shall have the power for great good, but equal power on a misplaced word. You shall complain about a senator who seems condescending to you because of your age. And when the slave clerk nods and sends for the Praetorian to push forward his death in the Kalends, you wave them off and make the slave clerk promise to keep him safe. 
The slave clerk shall wink as if he does not believe you. No, I mean it. Do not touch a hair on his head, you shall say. The slave clerk shall wink again, and you strike him, telling him that this senator will not be touched. The man assures you that your orders will be followed, but he winks once more. You fear that you shall be deceived, that the slave clerk believes that you really want him killed, and your anger is simply for his benefit, for deniability. You shall send a message to the senator's house. A message from the emperor is always received immediately. You give warning to protect himself that night. The senator takes your advice and spends the night holding a sword and comforting the fears of his terrified family. The senator is not grateful. You assure him that your concern was real and he still does not believe you. You shall heap awards upon him and he still treats you with suspicion. You know that your words mean nothing, but his wife shall grab your hand and beg for his life. For the first time you hear the word tyrant in the whispers that follow you throughout the day. You will be called tyrant even when you try to save a life. To keep your seat as emperor, you must keep as many people happy as possible. You must keep the army happy. Their pay should not be cut. Their benefits and hope for land must be satisfied. You must keep the Senate happy. The old senators have lineages going back for generations, and they find slights and injuries to their egos the worst cut of all, for they think themselves equal to the task of any emperor. You must keep the people happy. The city is bursting the seams of the unemployed. The people cannot be controlled if they become a mob. A mob is dangerous. It kills and burns. So you must use the vast sums of the treasury to pay for games and the dole. Keep them happy, the slave clerks advise, their bellies full and their eyes filled with games. The priest of Jupiter charge your horoscope once more. They tell you this is the year of your godhead. All that from a liver, you say, your voice deeper, your voice sounding more like a man. You shall learn that a statue in Londinium has been dedicated to you. Years later, you find that a temple has been built. A few years after that, you find that you are a god. Old women pray to you and boys say their prayers to you before going to bed. You don't feel like a god when your stomach quivers and quakes and your bowels creak after eating too many mushrooms with too much wine. When you are twenty, you shall go to war. You do not understand the consequences of war. Never had seen a battle, so you imagine it to be glorious. You love the white armor that you must wear, and the city turns out to send you across the world. You learn quickly that war is fear, sweat, and borrowed courage. The war is in a land of unrelenting heat. And strange men with black beards and long arrows. You shall suffer with your troops, and the men will call you the young sentry, for you are always watching the horizon. They mistake your fear for diligence. You shall be ambushed three times, and the size of your force grows smaller. You finally become fed up with the marches and the heat. The attacks from hill and mountain top. You remember the actions of Alexander. How his men scaled a mountain face to surprise the enemy at their mountain nest. You call the men to follow you up the sides of a great mountain cliff. You must lead, and only when you make the climb yourself do they follow. During the ascent, three men fall to their deaths. But to your surprise, you've been followed by the entire army. A legion has followed you up the face of a mountain, and a legion shall fall upon the secret base on a hilltop enemy. The battle is long. 
and deafening in the mountain caverns, and three times you were almost killed if it was not for the fact that you are quick, and there was always another legionnaire to come to your aid. To your surprise, the commanders come to you to tell you that they have captured the enemy king. You are surprised that it is a young man, not much older than yourself. He, too, loves to talk of Alexander. The two of you engage in conversation for the entire journey back to Rome. You on your horse and the defeated king in chains as he walks beside you. A most pleasant way to travel, Alexander in good company. You're given a triumph, and the troops enter the city in glory. Thousands shall line the streets, thousands cheer, and watch you pass, shouting your name. You are the only thing brighter than the sun that day. Your face painted red, a laurel raised above your brow. At the temple of Jupiter, the young enemy king, lover of Alexander, is strangled for the glory of Jupiter. Pity. The priests of Jupiter chart your horoscope once more. They shall tell you this is the year of your marriage. All that from a liver, you shall say, your voice sounding fearful, for you soon know you must face the greatest mystery ever known, a woman. Many women shall be introduced to you. They are of every shape and color of hair. Some laugh and titter, some look at you with fake adoration. Some fear you, some want to use you. Some want your power and lust for the room filled with coffers of denarii that would be theirs. The slave clerks say you must marry a noble, and the noble families dance about you to introduce their daughters in a never-ending praise. He's so young, he's so handsome. (laughs) Come here, come here. Come on, let's get closer. Yes, oh, look, look at the emperor. Oh, it's really him, it's really him. Oh, look at me, look at me. Am I pretty? Come, come this way, this way. Oh, no, 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 come this way. Do you want me? Do you like me? Am I beautiful enough? Do you like my dress, my hair? Oh, oh, you're so handsome. (laughs) They know your head is easily swayed, easily distracted by beauty. Many give you their bodies, thinking that is enough to seal a bargain. You take their offer, for you are young, a stallion, as human as the next. In their arms you forget that you are emperor, and think only that you are a man. One day you escape to the library of Rome and hide among the stacks like the days when you were a boy. You remember your days following your uncle father about, your life filled with Homer and the scribblings of Virgil. It was a wonderful life of books and dreams. The bench where you first hid on the day of the running feet still sits beneath the window. You look to the left and right and try to hide once more beneath it, and to your surprise you shall fit under the bench. Suddenly two feet appear, women's shoes. "'What are you doing?' a woman's voice asks. "'You get out from underneath, and she stands looking up at you. "'She carries three books, Homer, Horace, and Juvenal. "'A lover of books, you muse. Her name is Etonia. "'You shall marry her. You shall marry an Equit's daughter. "'Not a high noble, but high enough. "'The slave clerks find nobility somewhere in her line. "'That is enough to seal the bargain, "'especially after you threaten to send them to the mines.' Power this time comes in handy. You shall be married in two months. You shall have three children, all named for, all named for the men who wrote this book she held on that day, Homer, Horace, and Juvelania. The name slightly changed for a girl. Five years later, you learn something. There is a conspiracy against you. The slave clerks say so. 
You fear this more than anything, and you shrink back into your throne. You would rather have a war. The Praetorian captain, who looks like Marcus Arrakis, lately all the Praetorian captains look like Arrakis, tells you not to fear. They have located the fending house, and you will spring the trap tonight. You tell them that you wish to come with, that you want to see the faces of the conspirators. When the trap is sprung, the Praetorian captain agrees, and on the ninth hour of the watch, the guards move out by torchlight. The moon is high, the streets deserted. An occasional dog lopes across the street. Hiding places are staked out. Families were moved. Houses to the left and right were taken so that the guards could watch the offending house. And no one would suspect. In the eleventh hour of the night, several men and women appear in the street with gladiator escorts. They look with furtive glances to the left and right. Do you take them now? you ask. No. Let them get started, and we shall spring the trap, the Praetorian captain instructs. You do not ask him what that means. It is an hour later when the Praetorian captain gives the word. Guards rush out with a small battering ram and crash and splinter the way through the door. Somehow a woman slips past the guards and runs out in blind panic, running like a gazelle, and runners have been stationed along the street to bring her down. They spring from the alleys and intercept her with a strong arm. A man escapes, and two or three of the Praetorian runners have to tackle him. Greens from inside the house meet your ears. Slaves run down the corridors and into the back of the house. Doors slam and someone grunts and a scream rings out when they are too slow for the guards who push with sword and shield to the center of the house. Someone shouts, Run! Inside the atrium, ten people all gather in the center. On the table is a goat whose belly has been slit open to reveal the liver. It is sliced and inspected for discoloration. The men are divining your horoscope so they can bring you down to determine the best place to strike. Papers are found, the months and days drawn out, the highs and lows of your luck and fortune graphed out for the perfect day to strike. They are all arrested and led away. The house belongs to the family of Marcus Arrakis. They are relatives to the man you befriended and sent to death. They have not forgotten the slight of his execution. At the trial, the charges are read out. To bring down the emperor by divining his future, to use forbidden knowledge, to bring seditious forces against his divine presence. That's right, you had forgotten. You are a god, and gods have the power of life and death. You shall pass out the following sentences. Six shall swing on the end of a rope. Two are sent to the arena. The women you show leniency by selling them into slavery. The years pass and the empire flourishes. Baths are built. Two new aqueducts are started. Twenty-one theaters in fifteen cities across the empire have been granted culture by the generosity of both citizens and its leading citizens and by your decree. A city in your empire has fallen sick ten times in the last decade. You order the city moved to higher ground. Every stone and tiled roof is moved and hauled up the opposing hill with an aqueduct to provide water. You thought the people would be grateful, but they rebel and the legion is sent to quell the discontents. No one likes having their lives disrupted. You will save their lives if it kills them. Power by its nature hurts. 
The whispers grow, and the word tyrant is used more and more in the wine bars across Rome. Ruling an empire is tricky. Ignore the Senate and you fall. Ignore the people and you fall. Ignore the borders and you fall. One misstep, one small misstep, leads to the edge of the cliff. Wait, no, that is wrong. Any step, all steps, can eventually lead to your fall. One day, you shall take a trip to the Isle of Rhodes. A delegation is at the harbor as you make port. Children with flowers, leading citizens and their wives cheer you as you depart the ship. The children sing a song asking that you have long life. A priest makes a small sacrifice of a pigeon, and its blood spatters into a bowl, but a bit of it finds its way to the front of your toga. You shall be given the finest house on the island, overlooking the city Agora, and you walk with your children in the magnificent gardens. Your youngest shall scream in fear, and they run from something found on the walk. Lying there is the head of a rabbit, the body gone, but just the head. You have your slaves take the children away to comfort them. The next day, the breeze off the ocean is cool and you can see far into the distance. A ship is in trouble and is on fire and sinking fast. You order the slave clerks to run into town and order the fleet out of port to save those on board. As you stand there, you see the ship sink below the waves. The crews are mere dots upon the ocean and they struggle to stay afloat. It will be too late by the time the ships from port reach them. You are emperor, god, ruler of everything, and you can't stop death. The priests of Jupiter chart your horoscope once more. They take the liver from a goat, and to their surprise there is no blood. The final omen. The final straw. You shall press forward and look with shock upon the sliced meat upon the table. What does that mean, you ask? The priests are scared of you. They can only shake their heads. Did someone cut out your tongues, you say? Still no one tries to interpret what they see. Someone, anyone, answer me, you shall beg. The priests are silent, and they scatter before you, but you manage to grab one, a small little man with a shiny head and a crooked nose. You shall try to pry his mouth open to see if he has a tongue. The priest panics as your fingers push past his teeth. He takes the sacrificial knife and plunges it into your side. The room empties out. The room becomes cold. You shall hold your side, for it will ache as if someone has punched you. You look down, and there is blood all over the floor, and it's getting bigger, spreading out, and covering the tile that is intricately laid out to show a fierce wolfhound, and the words, Beware of the dog. All that from a liver, you shall giggle. Your liver bleeds out, and you go to join the gods. The old man has finished his tale. He sees no more images. Tendrils of smoke cling and circle about the rafters. Well, boy, he says, there's your future. He looks up. He is alone in the room. 
There's nothing but a half-eaten honey cake on a chair. Run away, run away. No, leave, far away, go, flee, escape, go home, go home. The boy has fled into the night. He has gone to hide in his library. Leave. To wait for the future to catch up with him. Far away, go. If you're trying to figure out what emperor my little drama was based on, well, frankly, none. The opening vignette was a compilation of many aspects of the lives of the emperors, and not based on one particular person. You could say, like an alchemist, I provided you a mixture of Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Hadrian, and a variety of others, to bring you just a taste of an emperor's life. Well, the odds of being one are impossible these days, but there are a few people that came close to it. In the 17th century, Napoleon Bonaparte came as close as you can get. If you don't believe me, take a look at a painting by Jacques-Louis David. It's called The Consecration of the Emperor Napoleon I, and coronation of the Empress Josephine in the Cathedral of Notre Dame on 2nd of December, 1804. One look at that painting, and you know he wanted to be emperor. And who in the 20th can claim such a job on their resume? Stalin, maybe? Chairman Mao, of course. But he would be the last person in the world to refer to himself with that title. Mao had total power to wage war. He could change and direct the populace in any direction he desired. He was emperor without being called emperor. He was not the first person to use that tactic. Augustus himself refused to use the title for many years. What do you call the ability to send an entire generation to labor in the countryside? Power is certainly one of the aspects of being emperor. I'm not an expert in psychology, and certainly not an expert in the psychology of emperors. I can only make observations and predict or wonder of the context of which they operated. What is context? According to the dictionary, this usually means the conditions, the environment, the background, or settings which determine or clarify the meaning of the event or the times. In other words, what was the conditions these emperors were operating under? What was important to them? Well, their history, their heroes, took and burned cities and defied the gods. They lived for the now. No afterlife to dream of. Hades was a horrible, boring place. Take what you can in the now, for no paradise awaits in the hereafter. And death was constant. It was familiar, a friend, and even entertainment. The use of it, the taking of it, and the accepting of it for what was something not to be feared. Their world was filled with barbarian invasions, civil wars, despotism, and epidemics. So why not go for what they read about in the Trojan cycle? 
called Cleos, meaning renown, glory, or another way to say it is simply what others hear about me. And to hell with all the others, and because the world had yet to embrace, do unto others as they would do unto you. Life was to be lived. The gods, after all, were flawed. They danced, raped, and spilled their seed, popping out demigods and goddesses from the mortal race. Wasn't Zeus himself a petulant, sensual, henpecked figure? Could not his wife be cruel and unforgiving? Did not Apollo stalk and chase the virtuous Daphne until she turned into a tree to escape his insistence that she loved him when she did not? All on an arrow provided by Cupid, which basically made a god who followed his prick into obsession. These people, these future emperors, were entertained with such tales as children. And though the emperors had philosophers to teach them strength, Nero, Augustus, Domitian, Vespasian, and the others were raised on the gods that placed Cleos over all. Getting what's yours. To be a god at that time was to behave badly and be worshipped for it. Wasn't that the unintended moral of the story Hans and Gretel, written by Brothers Grimm? Murder, even in self-defense, gets you the gingerbread house and money to take home to mother. Being emperor is not an easy thing, though it certainly has its benefits. Remember the Mel Brooks line? It's good to be king. Well, it is, to a point. Now, I understand the distinction between king and emperor. An emperor holds sway over nations, and a king holds sway over his subjects. But if I was to choose some way to show you what it's like to be an emperor... I'd love to show you an episode of the NBC cancelled show Kings, K-I-N-G-S, which is not a bad illustration of the daily life of an emperor. The TV show's Kings was a retelling of the tale of David and Goliath. It takes place in a modern kingdom on the continent of the U.S. in some alternate universe, where a young soldier faces down and destroys a tank called the Goliath and finds himself propelled into the center of the court of King Cyrus, who rules the country of Gilboa. In this story, God really does move in mysterious ways, and characters find themselves in and out of his favor, and in the meantime, we have an appropriate amount of court intrigue. It's not popular to speak of God, but I do so now and publicly because I feel blessed. I am blessed. I look at this city that we built through industry, through ingenuity, through war and sacrifice, and I feel that blessing. This city is the dream of a half century, and this morning, we bring that dream into the day. We have built Shiloh. There's no surprise. I knew this day would come. I knew this land, these territories, once at war, factions fractured, were meant to be. 
one nation together at peace. When I first looked out at the ruins that would become Shiloh, the reason I suggest this show is the character of King Silas. He wields the power of an emperor, and I think he does a fantastic job of portraying of what an emperor might think or do or act like. He is an emperor. Just like a king in their own country, and just like a company president, and indeed some heads of families. Silas believes his power comes from God. I mean, he doesn't believe it out of political convenience, but he believes it, and he will do everything and anything to retain God's favor. It is said we are all connected. The actions of one affect everyone. There is a ripple effect, like the flapping of a butterfly's wings. Even the seemingly insignificant, tiny things around us can make a huge difference in our world. Now, there is one among us who has proven we all can bring about change. David Shepherd has shown that it doesn't matter where you come from. Every voice counts in our kingdom. David has given us hope, peace. David has given his best to the man who has inspired us all. This holiday season, will you be there for your king? One act of bravery can change everything. One man can make a difference. Who among you will be like David? Under one flag, under one king. The TV show illustrates that in his kingdom, look at the king in the wrong way, get up from your chair a little too fast before the king deigns to rise from his, or get in the way of his political aspirations, and you could find yourself shot or found one morning looking like you had a heart attack when you went out for a jog. The dynamics are fantastic. Children who love their father but fear him just the same. The daughter hides her feeling for David, slayer of tanks, a son who hides his sexuality because he hopes to succeed to the throne, and a mother who is willing to put her daughter in jail rather than tell the truth. She too fears the king's power and literally has made her pact with the devil, her husband, so she can retain the power of a household army that can set a table with the precision of a computer. Swearing oaths to God or a king has meaning in the show. And you better well keep your word. And don't bring bad news to the king. In this show, don't kill the messenger could be reinterpreted to mean don't put a fist in his face. Which he does to a poor guy. Well, is anyone in the room going to arrest him? No, not in his kingdom. Not in Kilboa. I realize this show seems to have more biblical or Shakespearean influence rather than high Roman court intrigue. But I don't think it's too far off the mark in showing what an imperial family could have been like on 
kings. I came here greedy for all the trappings position could provide. Andrew? Mm -hmm. I thought he was. In exile, he was. Back tonight, and my nephew will be welcome to table by all. Your treachery. In the show, King Silas emotionally strong-arms his daughter to honor an oath that she has made on a deathbed that she would be married to a country rather than to mortal man, literally making her a state-owned nun, and forcing his son to give up his true sexual orientation for the benefit of an heir to the throne, locking his son and the potential mate in a room until they give him a baby. This is very close to Augustus' history and lore. Did not Augustus banish his daughter to an island? Did not Augustus force his stepson, Tiberius, to give up his wife to marry someone else? If you ever want to watch the show, it's available on DVD and iTunes. The character of Silas Benjamin is an excellent characterization of the life of an emperor, even though on this particular show, he's called King. My serviceman's been monitoring me. How much longer can we keep this up? I just need some time. You're not having second thoughts, are you? But if we were honest about us, we wouldn't need to sneak around. In the expanse of 49 years from Severus to Diocletian, there were 26 emperors of which only one died of a natural death. So, let me put something to you. Do you want to apply for the job? Now, do you remember from episode 2, I happen to have a time machine. So, I'm going to send you back into time. Sorry. Okay, you're back. Let's say that you've been invited to a job interview. A very special job interview. You saw an ad. It reads as follows. Wanted. Emperor of the known world. Must be able to rule wisely and justly. Empire spans from Hispania to outer Assyria. Has colonies in the northern island of Britannia to the southernmost lands of Egyptus. The gods must be on your side and must be able to attract the gods of others to live in Rome. Must get along with others, especially the Senate and the army. Apply within. So you've got to have a job. And you've always been interested in the job of emperor. You've always been attracted to the power of it all. So you go to the Senate house. You're going to apply. Now, I know what you're thinking. This would never happen. This can't be real. Well, we've already talked about an alternate universe where there are kingdoms upon the American soil and we have Silas Benjamin ruling the kingdom of Gilboa. Well, now we're going to talk about you. Yes, you, applying for the job of emperor. The Senate has convened. 300 patricians, white-toked patrician fathers now sit waiting in the next room. You stand just outside the Senate house, separated from them by an iron door. Two priests stand outside. They make a sacrifice of pigeons before you're allowed to enter. The flesh inside their small bodies are inspected for blemish. And the auspices are good. And as if by magic, the doors open and you walk inside. There are benches to the left and right. And they are filled with the old goats that shall decide if you deserve the job. You are led to a seat at the middle of the room by a nomenclature. Well, a nomenclature is a secretary, really, and he introduces you to the room. You decide to be respectful, and you bow before taking the seat. I'll be your advisor. I traveled with you. I'm going to stand there looking 
slightly out of place, but I'm going to bow and keep my head down, and they'll mistake me for a slave. And I'll give you advice as you need it. The nomenclature announces, Conscript fathers, here is the candidate. He is ready to answer your questions. Do you have what it takes to be emperor? Well, let's see if you do. First question. What is the most important thing in the empire? A white-haired senator asks. Shall you maintain the borders, fill the treasury, or keep the people entertained? He sits down to thunderous applause. The senators like his question. Now, what will you answer? Time's up. Want some advice? Well, I'll whisper it in your ear, but you're going to have to be the one who gets up and delivers it. The borders are an important part of the empire. Expanding them brings money in. Maintaining them brings prestige and fills the treasury. Conquering another country not only brings back their gold, but other assets. Plenty of slaves bring benefits to the upper crust, but not necessarily to the common man. When the plebeian has to compete with cheap labor, because the jobs are being filled by slaves, then freemen have to depend on the dole for survival. This increases the demands on the public purse. Idle men and women are political trouble. Distraction is a tactic to take their minds off their condition. And a common way to entertain the masses of Rome is with what is termed bread and circuses. This again costs the treasury. Though you can have your rich friends bear the cost on more than one occasion, you, as emperor, will have to bear the cost. Growth comes from conquered nations. Caesar gained power and money through the conquest of Gaul, which brought him not only wealth and booty, but in slaves. Slaves, you see, are dollars. They're fungible assets. Slaves increase the wealth of the empire. Plunder increases the wealth of the empire as well. But be careful. According to the historian Josephus, so much plunder was taken from the sack of Jerusalem that the value of gold dropped throughout Syria. But the victory over Jerusalem justified politically the establishment of the new ruler Vespasian and did fund the construction of the Colosseum. Octavian, later named Augustus, may have been more interested in the Ptolemy treasure house than Cleopatra herself. You see, he had to pay his legions, and the surest way to bring more money into the emperor was to topple one of the richest countries in the region. The fall of Egypt made Augustus one of the richest men in Rome. Egypt became his private province. Expanding the empire has risks. For one thing, you have to win. Marcus Licinius Crassus, the conqueror of Spartacus, decided to expand the empire by conquering the Parthians. Oh, he got the gold he was seeking. He was just not expecting it to have it poured down his throat. An unusual end for one of the richest men in Rome. And he did not expect to have a career change either. In a performance of Euripides, the Greek tragedy the Bacchae, he got to play a decapitated head. You should note, this was his final performance. Conquest feeds the empire, it fills the treasury, and it keeps the public entertained by triumphs and new victims for the arena. Maintaining the borders is fine, but without the new influx of funds, it will eventually raise the taxes on those within the empire. 
Better to tax those in the provinces than those closest to you in Rome. To maintain the borders, you have to keep the legions on the perimeter, and the only way to do that is to keep the treasury filled. To keep the people entertained, you must use the denarii that might have been used to pay the legions and keep the borders maintained, which keeps the barbarians out. Emperor Domitian increased public building, put on expensive entertainments, gave a raise to the army, and soon found himself out of cash. In response, he decided to cut down on the number of soldiers. Bad idea, because this opens up your borders to attack. So now he needed money, and he resorted to fleecing his own citizens, confiscating their property. This can lead to an emperor having a very short lifespan. I know these are large issues to consider, but you are now in the realm of an emperor. Do one thing and you get the senate mad at you. Do another and the army is mad at you as well. Domitian met his end, and the army wanted revenge on his assassins. They wanted them called to justice, but you see, they were getting paid by Domitian. Of course they wanted revenge. So what is your answer? Shall you maintain the borders, fill the treasury, or keep the people entertained? Of course, after whispering in your ear, I step back. It's up to you to answer. You have to answer. They're waiting. Okay, it's time for the second question. Near the front, a fat senator stands and shouts to the room. Who is more important? The Senate, the army, or the people of Rome? So what is your answer? I step forward and whisper some advice in your ear. Well, for one thing, I would consider the Senate. The Senate is the power of Rome. It is composed of the richest or most influential people. They are an advisory council and a source of appointed officials. From the senatorial numbers, many commanders and government officials are chosen. And from this, possible imperial contenders. From the Senate comes the legitimacy of your rule, even though the vast majority of them would not shed one tear if the imperial seat disappeared tomorrow. Now... The Senate lost much of its power under Augustus. You must at least give the appearance that you're consulting with them. Do not be surprised that they come to you on occasion, waffling one way or another until they think they came up with a solution that you will like. And, of course, you probably have already made up your mind, and you'll nod your head seriously like you're pondering the Senate's solution, and that you'll go along with them making it clear it was their idea, and you're so glad that they were there to help you. But I warn you, the Senate will try to fight you on things, and you have to understand, the Senate is weak. Tiberius, the second emperor, was quoted as saying, Oh, you lot, fit only for servitude. End quote. It's kind of interesting that Abraham Lincoln was quoted as saying, Senators are hogs and should be beaten like hogs. End quote. To get on your good side, the Senate will heap offices and awards on you in hopes that you'll be in a good mood. Expect, at least, father of your country. 
When this happens, be careful. There's a strong possibility that it is being done to make you look ridiculous in the eyes of the people. Nothing looks sillier than a man whose titles outweigh the length of his name. However, most of the Senate is composed of old and noble families, and though they don't admit it, most senators think they can do your job quite easily. Remember the founding father of the imperial line was Julius Caesar, and he was one of them. So if you want to stay in power, or simply stay alive, try not to humiliate the Senate too often. Caesar purposely weakened their power by stacking the deck in his favor. He controlled the number of senators, and who the senators were, and other emperors weren't beyond doing it themselves. Well, why not get people who will agree with you and put them in power? Caesar, instead of choosing nobility, chose, oh, businessmen, loyal Gauls, and even a few centurions. Well, the Senate was an exclusive club. How would you like to be sitting next to a guy in the Senate who was just a few years ago was living in a mud hut in Gaul? If you want to really move up the date of your assassination, don't make it a practice to humiliate senators. It's just not a good idea. Caligula made older senators jog beside his chariot. I also strongly suggest that you don't directly threaten anyone. Commodus, after appearing in the arena and after beheading an ostrich, carried the decapitated bird's head over to some senators and gesticulated that they would be next. This is just not good politics. If you're going to work with the senators, at least make them think you value their opinion. Well, Augustus was like that. He had no problem approaching them one-on-one, discussing this and that like he was at the barbers or met them on the street while coming back from the games. He knew their names and was congenial and accessible. That meant the Praetorian Guard was kept out of sight. If you have supreme power, act like you don't. Act like you're a common citizen. For instance, Augustus never wanted to be called emperor, but first citizen. Or another term was first among equals. Augustus allowed people to speak their minds, and he traveled about without pomp. He pretended not to have power, even when he had it. The following is a speech of Augustus. I know very well, conscript fathers, that I shall appear to you to have made an incredible choice. I lay down my office in its entirety and return to you all authority absolutely, authority over the laws, the army, and the provinces, not only those territories which you entrusted to me, but those which I secured for you. I restore to you your freedom and the republic. End quote. The only problem is the Senate did not take the republic back. No one believed his gesture. It was all for show and well into his seventh consulship. He was an emperor, not in name, but in power. He had the power of consul without being consul. He had the power of tribune without being a tribune. If you're going to bring in an emperorship or a king... Don't say the word too loud, for Romans did not like the word king. Allow the Romans to call you anything they want, as long as, in the end, you have the power. A republic and its provinces had to get used to being ruled. Tiberius, the second emperor, said the following to a greedy governor, 
You should shear my sheep, not flay them. End quote. This was good advice for the provinces and the Senate. And now for the second part of the question. Consider the army. The army is the power of Rome. The army is composed of legions. The formation, size, and strength of the legion has changed over the years, but the main unit is composed of infantry with formations of 4,000 to 5,000 men. Multiple legions has given the Senate and the Emperor the ability to dispatch multiple armies to meet any threat and fight over multiple fronts. The number of legions has changed over the years. Around 100 AD, there were about 29 legions with names such as Gallica, Ferrata, Vixtrix, and Apollinarius, many having their own distinct feel, which anyone who served in the 82nd Airborne and then served in the 10th Mountain Division would be sure to notice. Heck, just visit a Marine Command and compare it to an Army Battalion. Brigades and divisions vary according to their purpose and the length of time they were in existence. They may have the same mission, but living amongst soldiers and organizations, you will see that they all have a feel of their own. Be part of the 82nd Airborne, and no matter where your career takes you, you are 82nd Airborne forever. I wonder if a member of the Ferrata Legion might feel out of place that if by some mishap they found themselves serving in the Victrix. The Roman army is your power base. Raising their pay at various times keeps them loyal, but forgetting to pay their salaries is the fastest way to make the legions revolt. Even in today's army, you can put a soldier in harm's way, expect him to live in horrible conditions while under constant threat of attack, but the one thing you don't do, and the fastest way for a commander to be relieved of command, is mess with a soldier's pay. The Emperor Severus gave some good advice. Take care of the army, and everything else will take care of itself. Legions have rebelled in the past for various reasons. Most of the time it has to do with pay or poor conditions. Let's give an example. So try to imagine this. As emperor, you are walking into a legionnaire's camp in rebellion. We are talking about 7,000 men with swords who are pissed off. We are talking about 7,000 men where all discipline has broken down and they are not happy to see you. You represent discipline, a return to the harsh life. The camp is in disarray. One or two of the Cetarians are dead. Many loyal officers have been flogged and are unconscious on the ground, their backs striped. Men stagger drunk around the camp, and you purposely seek out the ringleaders. The rebels have taken over the commander's tent. As you approach the tent, men look at you in shock. The white armor of the Emperor is a stark contrast to the filth of the camp. You enter the tent, and you see men gathered around in the center, around a campaign desk. They still haven't cleaned up the commander's body. Young Exidol, his nickname, the real name Marius, he's close to 50, and sits dead. In a chair, propped up, he played with you at the summer villa at the estate at Tarentum when you were boys. The mutineers argue back and forth and do not notice your appearance. You don't bother to announce it. Why should you? You are the emperor. Soon a glance reveals your presence. Someone says, By the balls of Jupiter, it's the emperor himself. Gathered around the table are all the satyrians. They're a committee. The one to speak is the most senior, the most honored, and his chest is covered with torque and awards for bravery, and he has a ribbon tied around the pectorals of his breastplate. 
He's the Primus Petus, the leading centurion and the leading rogue as far as you are concerned. This is a man that should have known better, who should have nipped this display of treason in the bud. The Ceturian Committee rushes forward to grab your arms. You walked in unharmed and unprotected. A fool's gesture. But the Primus Pilus holds them back. His person is sacred. Keep your filthy hands off him. What are your demands, you ask? What? Spear Carrier blurts in his silence by the Primus. He wants to know our demands, a voice in the tent says. Money, your excellency, a barracks advocate says. We have not been paid in three months. Our pockets are empty, and there was booty in the last city we took. The commander, you interrupt. Who you killed? Yes, unfortunate, the advocate says. But he made a move with his sword when we approached him. As I was saying, Emperor, there was booty that should have been shared with the Legion. Suddenly from the back, a spear carrier shouts, Do you agree with our demands? No, you say, Give me, Emperor, the Primus says. I believe you said... You interrupt him and draw your sword. Several centurions draw their swords in response. You will, you tell them. You will restore order in the camp. You will deliver to me the ringleaders. And I presume, you say, pointing the tip of the sword to the centurion committee, those responsible are all of you. There's silence in the tent. But then someone says, And if we don't, what will you do? You say, I will kill myself. The room erupts in laughter. Everyone laughs except the Primus. The insulting spear carrier steps forward and hands you a sword. My point is sharper, Emperor. Use mine. He smiles, revealing two missing front teeth. The Primus pushes him away and says, A noble thing to say, Excellency, but a gesture. We don't want your life, we want our pay. You shake off the offered sword. You smile at the men in the room and say, I negotiate only with soldiers, not citizens. The men look upset. They object to being called citizens. Soldiers what they are, and soldiers is their preferred form of address. Soldiers are what they have been for a lifetime, in the rain, the snow, and the deserts of foreign stinking lands. To be called citizen means they do not follow the eagle and ignore his years of sacrifice they have made for Rome. You shake your head. I see citizens complaining for an extra loaf of bread. Soldiers bear the weight and the load until the state can compensate. One soldier begins to cry. Another grows angry. Many begin to shout. A soldier outside the realm of discipline is not a soldier, let alone a Roman. Before you leave, you tell them, Bring order to the camp, give me the conspirators, and bound the first to call for rebellion, and bring him to me. The senior centurion responds, I can bring order to the camp. I can't give you the first to call for rebellion. Why not, you ask? For I am the one who called for rebellion. You nod to the other Saturnians. The others read your thought, and the next day the Primus is stripped of his armor and his medals. He is delivered to your tent, like a first-year recruit. If you find this scenario hard to believe, well, the histories tell us different. Trapped in a meeting of complaining legionnaires, Germanicus threatened to kill himself. Some men restrained him, others offered up their swords for the task, but he did bring the legions back under control. Caesar brought a legion back into line simply by calling them citizens, 
and had the soldiers in tears that he should even think of them as such. Strange how a word can change the course of events. In the early days of the Republic, legions were temporary, formed to deal with an emergency, and then disbanded, but under Marius they became professional. Standing armies that swore oaths to the commander and fought in the civil wars to promote the general's bid for power. The great civil wars divided the armies into Pompeian, Octavian, and Antonian camps, and though there were many occasions that they attempted to slaughter each other, and they did slaughter each other, there were times the men refused to fight. At the time of the civil wars, Antonian forces returned to Italy and made a landfall at Budizium. They were met by Octavian's armies, and both forces refused to fight. A deal was made. Antony gets the east, and Octavian's sister as a wife, and Octavian gets the western half of the world. An alliance and a marriage because two armies did not want to slaughter each other. I doubt it happened because of any love between the two men, but a recognition that there were more than a few friends on the other side of the shields that were staring at each other. It's an embarrassing thing to give an order to move out, and everyone just stands there. So, we come to the third part of the question. I whisper in your ear, consider the people, for the people are the power of Rome. It really depends what we mean by the people. Are we talking about the patricians, the equites, or the plebeians? I suppose it depends on the time we're speaking of. For instance, the early Republican times, the vote of the people was sought out, even though the election process favored the patricians. But in Republican or Imperial times, the people were courted just the same. Well, they needed them. For one thing, they had to serve in the army, and the other thing was they wanted them to be quiet. Yes, I mean that. The most feared thing in Rome was the mob. Weigh what they could do, imperial candidate. Weigh what the mob can do to destroy good order. Riot and burn and set in motion the downfall. It's all in the numbers. They are bigger than we are. Weapons are ineffective at most. Keeping the crowd back is hard. There are no guns. No automatic fire. This is the age of stabbing weapons and shield. Nothing more. You can be overwhelmed in an instant. The following is from Gibbon. The people demanded with angry clamors the head of the public enemy. Cleander, who commanded the Praetorian guards, ordered a body of cavalry to sally forth and disperse the seditious multitude. The multitude fled with precipitation towards the city. Several were slain, and many more were trampled to death. But when the cavalry entered the streets, their pursuit was checked by a shower of stones and darts from the roofs and windows of the houses. Gibbon goes on to write, The tumult became a regular engagement and threatened a general massacre. The Praetorians at length gave way, oppressed with numbers, and the tide of popular fury returned with redoubled violence against the gates of the palace, where Commodus lay dissolved in luxury and alone unconscious of the civil war. Commodus started from his dream of pleasure and commanded the head of Cleander should be thrown to the people. The desired spectacle appeased the tumult. End of quote. In other words, anything to keep them quiet. As a patrician, as an imperial candidate, you fear the opinion of the mob, 
and will open the treasury and fund the games until Jupiter himself becomes sick of the slaughter. With order comes commerce. With order comes the games. With order comes power. Riots seep order away, and order is what a Roman likes, what's more desires. The people, those that cannot afford the price of the baths, those who cannot buy a decent tunic or cloak to shield them from the elements, a smelly lot just a few steps above a slave who infests the depths of the Sabura, what the elite, the patrician, and equites alike called the militores, who would do anything for just a sursai and would eat you in a minute if your flesh would make them have an ounce of the glitter that they imagine your life to be. So you buy them off with food, with games, with gifts. They live in squalor, and the rents are high, but they prefer living here in Rome to the boredom of unremitting labor to the fields. Well, if there was a job to be had in the fields, because most of them are taken by slaves. Poverty drove them here, and life may be cheap, and they may watch the rich live in splendor and unremitting debauchery, but at least they are, they are one of many in the same boat. Here in Rome, you get a free loaf and sometimes are entertained. The mob's power comes in numbers, and the saving grace is that a mob's anger does not come frequently. But it takes much, but unfortunately it takes sometimes little to set them off. A mob in Alexandria rioted due to a Roman's horse killing a cat. But a Roman mob made Brutus flee Rome for his life. After all, Caesar was noble, but in theory was a populari, one of them. It is the mob and only the mob that can make a patrician flee. Keep the public entertained with bread and circuses. For the majority of the populace of Rome are unemployed. The success of Rome in its overseas adventures was unimaginable, and the supply of slaves flooded the estates and the labor markets. According to a paper by Walter Scheidel from Stanford University, he estimates one and a half million slaves equal 15 to 25 percent of the total population around the time of the late Republic and the early imperial times. This meant labor was cheap, and to get a handout, you went to Rome. The poor had lost their farms, so they picked up their families and headed to Rome. What choice did they have? They are then packed into the suburra and tenements already flooded with farmers and town peoples, all seeking a future. Except there is very little money when spread over the populace, and very little things to spend money on. For the poor, it's food and housing. For the rich, it's opulent houses, slaves, and adornment. And the voting system is rigged to the patrician class. Making change is hard. But the poor do have one thing, the power to make life unpleasant to those that make the laws. They have the power to riot. You can burn down the Senate House, attack patricians in the street, and refuse to serve in the army. And with that, you get the attention of the rich. So answer the question, who is more important, the Senate, the army, or the people of Rome? Of course, after whispering in your ear, I step back. It's up to you to answer. You have to answer. They're waiting. Time for the next question. Shouts go up in the Senate. Ask him a question, Dramaticus. Ask him a question. Dramaticus, Lucius, Astrobulus, 
stands up to the applause of his fellow senators. Applicant, what experience do you have leading an army? The question was, what experience do you have leading an army? As emperor, you'll be expected to do so, for this is the age of hands-on leadership. You gotta have a few skills. I suppose when you were in college, they taught you how to ride a horse and use a sword and shield? They didn't? Ouch. This might be an issue when your position is overrun by cavalry and you have to get away. At least, if you know how to sit on a horse, you can see what's going on during the battle. Try to imagine Nancy Pelosi taking charge of the 10th Mountain Division in Iraq. Try to imagine President Obama showing up in Afghanistan in full battle rattle and leading an offensive into the Korangal Valley. Though designated Commander-in-Chief, American presidents are not expected to take the division forward to come to grips with the enemy, except for occasional visits to the field and direction from their office on national strategy. The last president to personally lead an army was George Washington. This was during the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. Some farmers who had side businesses of brewing whiskey ran off some tax collectors. What started out as a small uh, regional disagreement turned into a full-scale rebellion. It got so bad that Washington mounted a horse, rode in front of the army, only to hear while he was on his way that the rebellion disbanded the moment they heard he took to the field. Having a reputation of beating the largest land army in the world gives you incredible street cred. He left another general in charge and went back home. War, nowadays, is left to the professionals. But as emperor, you must be willing to put the armor on, and the only place to learn how to command a legion is to hang around a legion. Part of the training of young nobles was to serve on army staffs. The question is where you're going to get the required training to take the job. If you want to pick up some knowledge on how a legion operates, a good book to consult is Legionary, the Roman Soldier's Unofficial Manual by Philip Matissak. The book covers equipment, basic training, tactics, and various commands. But reading a manual is not enough to give you the knowledge to do the job. It takes more. It takes getting used to carrying a legionary's equipment and weight. It takes having the stamina for a 25-mile march and submitting to the discipline of a legionnaire. Of course, you're going to be the emperor, not some common shield carrier. But as good soldiers are made, so are good generals. War is not simply shield-banging. It's logistics and tactics that have to be learned by years of experience. How far can an arrow travel? 100 to 150 yards. How many paces of a Roman soldier makes a mile? 1,000 paces. What is the speed of a Roman army? 4.5 miles per hour, sir. This is first year legionary knowledge. So why didn't you answer the question, General? It's too late. You're in the battle now. You're in the thick of it. An ancient battle is like watching butchers carve out flanks of beef hanging from the ceiling. It's to smell the garlic on your opponent's breath, to hear him scream. It's close in. It's personal. A physical stroke with your whole body behind the force of the blade, as if body and sword are one. It's not the minimal pressure needed to pull a trigger or riding a helicopter and reading a screen to bring down a hail of steel upon the enemy. It's personal. But I shouldn't say that. All war is personal. 
I'm not minimalizing the horrors of modern war and the burdens of the modern infantryman. Death is death, whether it's at the end of the barrel of an M16 or a Gladius. What I am questioning is if you have the skills and the mindset to take on this kind of danger. The only thing close to it is special forces training, or training with a bayonet, which, the army said recently, it's dropping from its basic training. You want to lead an army? From the Bella Gallicum, quote, After addressing the 10th Legion, Caesar hurried to the right wing, where he saw his men hard-pressed, and the standards of the 12th Legion clustered in one place, and the soldiers so crowded together that it impeded their fighting. All the Ceterians had fallen. The standard-bearer was dead and his standard captured. In the remaining cohorts, nearly, every Ceterian was either dead or wounded, including the Primus Pilus Sextus Julius Baculus, an exceptionally brave man, who was exhausted by his many wounds and could not stand long. The other soldiers were tired, and some in the rear had given up the fight and were withdrawing out of missile range. The enemy was edging closer up the slope, in front, and pressing hard on both flanks. End quote. Okay, Emperor Wantabe. What do you do to turn this around? This is an actual event right out of history. It's time to show what you got. Answer? From the Bella Gallicum. Caesar saw that the situation was critical, and there was no other reserve available. Took a shield from a man in the rear rank, for he had come without his own advanced into the front line and called on the Ceturians by name, encouraged the soldiers and ordered the line to advance and the units to extend so they could employ their swords more easily. His arrival brought hope to the soldiers and refreshed their spirits. Every man wanted to do his best in sight of the general. End quote. This is hands-on leadership. Are you prepared to do the same? So answer the question. What experience do you have leading an army? Or should I say a Roman army. I think one of the most important skills of a general is the ability to inspire the troops. A pep talk before the opening salvo is a common practice. And if you stutter like Claudius and you fail to pick the right words, you may cause more harm than good. The purpose of a speech is to inspire. What did Augustus say before Actium? He said the following. I base my confidence far more upon the causes underlying the war than upon such a force, for that we who are Romans and lords of the greatest portion of the world should be despised and trodden underfoot by an Egyptian woman is unworthy of our fathers, who overthrew Pyrrhus, Philip, Perseus, and Antichus, who drove the Numatians and the Carthaginians from their homes. Basically, he's telling the troops we took care of all these other fellows, so why should we worry about a woman? Augustus continues, Therefore let no one count him a Roman, but rather an Egyptian, nor call him Anthony, but rather Serapian. He was not really dehumanizing Anthony, but he was basically told the troops that he was no longer Roman, so it's okay, we can fight him, we can take him, folks. And surely you must not think that the size of their vessels or the thickness of their timbers of their ships is a match for our valor. Which is another way of saying, yeah, they're bigger than us, but so what? And Octavian gets right to the point. Let us conquer them here on the spot and take all these treasures away from them. 
Well, if you must appeal to a Roman army, appeal to the one thing a Roman soldier longs to hear, that sacking is allowed. It was noticed by the Roman army that many personal possessions were on board the opposing ships. Even Cleopatra had her treasury on board her flagship. So when you address the army, pick your words well. Sometimes I think that Augustus's speech was too long, too flowery. Written for Caesar as an afterthought of a propaganda tirade for political justification, all done in flowery prose rather than an accurate portrayal of what was actually said. Caesar's speech is actually many pages long. If you were about to enter into a battle, I mean a real battle, would you want to hear a dissertation? I mean, there's a strong possibility you're going to die. Is a flowery speech lasting pages something you really want to hear? And I tend to think that the speech was actually shorter. Let's talk instead of the speech delivered by Colonel Tim Collins, 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment, given in the Kuwaiti Desert in 2003. I will not claim to give his words justice, but if you want to hear Kenneth Branagh give it a shot rather than me, we'll listen for a second. We are going into Iraq to liberate and not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. Now there are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those of them who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send them. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wake them out, if that's what they choose. If you are ferocious in battle, Remember to be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood. It is the birthplace of Abraham. You tread, you tread lightly there. You'll have to go a long way to find a more decent, generous, and upright people than the Iraqis. You'll be embarrassed at the hospitality they offer you, even though they have nothing. Do not treat them as refugees in their own country. Now, if there are casualties of war, remember, and when they got up this morning and got dressed, they did not plan to die this day. So allow them dignity and death. Bury them with due reverence and properly mark their graves. It remains my foremost intention to bring every single one of you out alive. But there may be those among us who will not see the end of this campaign. And we will... We will put them in their sleeping bags and we will send them back. And there will be no time for sorrow. We will grieve for them later. The enemy should be in no doubt that we are his nemesis and we are bringing about his rightful destruction. But remember, it is a big step to take another human life. It is not to be done lightly. I know of men who have taken life needlessly in other conflicts. I can assure you, they live with the mark of Cain upon them. And I know your Mars will be in the queue at the co-op next week. And they won't want you to let them down. Let's bring everybody home safely. 
and leave Iraq a better place for us having been there. Our business now is north. I think you get the point. Somehow as emperor or commander you have to reach down and find the words. This speech was off the cuff and Colonel Tim Collins did not need Deocrasis to write it. It was right to the point and as short as any modern commander can make it. Sometimes less is more. The Senate is waiting for your answer. Go ahead. Of course, after whispering in your ear, I step back. It's up to you to answer. You have to answer. They're waiting. Now it's time for the next question. Senator Vera stands up very slowly, as if moving too fast will break a bone. It is rumored he is over 90 years of age, and he has seen many emperors come and go. Nothing surprises him. Applicant, he reaches out. Are you a god? The Senate shouts its approval to the question. The hall echoes with stamping of feet in the word. Here, here, answer the question now. Well, being a god is not part of the job, but you can expect that some delegation from outer Ladinium will ask to bless the temple in your name. Mina liked the idea of becoming a god, but rest assured, your advisors will jump at the chance. For one thing, it increases the loyalty to the concept of the Imperium, and having a temple in any town is good for tourism, and increases the tax base. Why do you think the towns are quite happy and vibe for the possibility of having a presidential library within the city limits? It's good for tourism and increases the tax base. A temple is prestige, and a presidential library is prestige as well, and both are temples if you really think about it. Anyway, deification increases your dignitas, but be careful. Don't start believing it yourself. Caligula, the crazy little bastard that he was, at least according to Suetonius, established a shrine to his own godhead. On many nights, he invited the moon goddess to his bed and would have conversations with Jupiter. At least upon his death, the emperor Vespasian had a little humor about it. Oh dear, I think I'm turning into a god, he said upon his deathbed, a statement that has just a modicum of doubt. Caligula, however, wanted to live the part. A patrician of the times could find himself stopping at a local temple to make a sacrifice to Castor and Pollux and find the Emperor Caligula himself standing between the two statues, accepting the sacrifice in their name. If you're going to be a god, it has to have the benefits, right? The gods do great things. So what better proof of your deification than to ride a carriage over the sea? Impossible, you say? Now when you can order the building of a double line of ships and construct a roadway some two to three miles long over the Bay of Naples. As Emperor Caligula said, he had overridden Neptune himself, and there is a price for such costly and godlike demonstrations of your power on Earth. Maybe after a while you begin to act like a god. 
If you visited the emperor in the 4th century, you were expected to throw yourself on the ground and prostrate yourself. It was for privilege to kiss the hem of his gown. Historian Amininius Miscellanus watched the entrance of Constantine in 357. He writes, quote, As if his neck in a vice, he kept the gaze of his eyes straight ahead, and turned his face neither to the right nor the left when the wheel jolted, nor was he seen to spit or to wipe or rub his face or move his hands about. End quote. The emperor of Rome had become a living god. But real gods can transform the elements to their will. Pretend gods simply bankrupt the treasury. Don't order others to place a statue of yourself, whether you are dressed like Zeus or not, in the courtyard of the Temple of Jerusalem. The Jewish people will definitely martyr themselves to get rid of your ugly face from getting too close to the Torah. Don't parade around in Rome dressed as a god. Romans won't believe it. Foreigners won't believe it, and especially Gaelic cobblers, who saw right through Caligula's attire and, like an ancient recreation of the emperor has no clothes, pointed out that the emperor was no god. If you want to be deified, let others do it, and for God's sakes... Did I just say that? For God's sakes? Well, anyway, wait till you're dead. The old senator asked you a question. Are you a god? What is your answer? It's up to you to answer. You have to answer. They're waiting. Senator Macella stands up and the room goes crazy. Macellus is a survivor of the Civil Wars. The Senate has changed over many times, and the striped patrician fathers have been reduced and grown under various emperors and untold prescriptions. But Marcellus has survived all. He is called the chameleon of the changeling. He speaks. Augustus, Augustus found, found Rome, Rome as, as brick, brick and, and left, left it marble. marble. How will How you, you leave it? it? The room erupts into thunderous applause. It's a fair question. How will you leave it? If you've been living in a cave or failed to take Shakespeare in high school, you can't tell me you've never heard of the fracas over Caesar's will. It was, after all. If Caesar was so bad, if he was such a terrible guy, why did he leave his gardens to us on the 300 sister size per man? No wonder Brutus headed for the city limits when most of the citizens found out that they had a small windfall coming their way. An emperor's worth will be measured out of what he did for Rome. Who did he enrich? What temples did he build? What theaters and gardens were built for the people? The Hoover Dam in Nevada can dwarf any Roman structure. It is a concrete dam in the Black Canyon of the Colorado River on the border of Nevada and Arizona. It was constructed between 1931 to 1936. We are not talking about some mere theater or temple, are we? The Hoover Dam is 1,244 feet in length, 726.4 feet high, and its base is about 660 feet, and it can discharge 400,000 cubic feet of water. Now, presidents like emperors, the ones who want to be remembered, build. Roosevelt built the Hoover Dam, some people call it the Boulder Dam. They gave thousands of jobs to an already depressed American, gave enough power for over 4.2 billion kilowatts. No way can the Romans compare to that. Man, 
we got them beat. Yet, wait a minute, the aqueducts. If you want to talk an engineering feat, let's talk about moving water. The Romans were famous for building roads, and what is an aqueduct but nothing more than a road for moving water? The first Roman aqueduct was constructed by Appius Calusius, the same who authorized the building of the Appian Way. Rome had an office established for this very purpose called the Curia Aquarium, tasked with the upkeep of the aquariums and the distribution of water. Build an aqueduct and people notice you. Those of you who live in the 21st century, please don't turn your noses up at this. Most of us, not everywhere, but most of us, live in an age where there is water available mostly 10 feet in any direction. But try to live at a time where you had to haul it, and the lowest form of life was the water carrier. A book was even written on the subject by Frontinius, who was the curator aquarium under Trajan. Moving water was a science and was a high art. The standard measurement for moving water is a quinaria, which is not a measure of volume, but how much water could be discharged through a pipe five-fourths of a digit in diameter flowing under constant pressure. Those of you who doubt the subject of moving water is a serious subject to discuss, I have no doubt that you have looked at your plumber at one time or another with the same look of worship that may be reserved for any emperor that you can imagine. Aqueducts are a wise investment, but they take a while to build. It is estimated that Rome was supplied with around half a million to one million cubic meters of water daily. For a pre-industrial society, I would say that was quite a feat. Frontinius, and we always remember the ones who write the definitive book on the subject, compared the buildings of such structures to the pyramids. Quote, With such an array of indispensable structures carrying so much waters, compare, if you will, the idle pyramids. End of quote. In other words, the aqueduct may equal the pyramids in grandeur, but at least the Roman aqueduct does something. Roads? We got them beat on roads. Well, maybe. The formation of the interstate highway system was championed by President Eisenhower. This is more than trying to improve interstate commerce, but was a defensive move to protect the United States. Why do you think it was called the National Interstate and Defense Act of 1956? As Rome needed roads to move armies, so did the United States. What's more, they made convenient landing strips as well. If you doubt this, ask yourself, what was the state of highways in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s? And what do you think the mindset of a president was who was a general who just got done defending the U.S. against two fascist powers? Rome was protected by roads, and sure enough, the United States, founded on good proper republic values and good solid Yankee ingenuity, would do the same. What's more, he happened to notice the Autobahn highway system in Germany when he was fighting a massive war as supreme allied commander. Think about it. At one time, getting to one end of the country to the other was not easy, and this was not too long ago. Take us back 80 to 90 years. You live in a time where roads are everywhere, but the road is really a fairly recent phenomenon. Roads became important in the U.S. with the development of the motor vehicle, and that was just a mere 80 to 90 years ago. A cross-country trip was still a major effort, and it was only the 1930s. 
Eisenhower was a member of an expedition of Army vehicles that made a cross-country trip to see if transversing the U.S. by motor vehicle was possible. Why do you think he decided to build highways in a massive building project? He saw for himself the lack of interconnecting highways throughout the U.S. Do you remember the Civil War? Richmond and Washington, D.C. were just 100 miles apart. Today, by highway, by road, especially by motor vehicle, 100 miles is nothing. But in the 1860s, to get from one city to the other took weeks. As emperor, you got to choose how to spend the treasury and what to spend it on. By 200 AD, the Romans constructed over 52,000 miles of highway and 200,000 miles of secondary roads. 29 roads radiated from Rome itself. These roads still are in existence, many still usable, and many modern roads follow the same path that was mapped out by Roman surveyors thousands of years ago. And now, this is the point where I just can't resist getting my two cents in. Have you ever wondered why you keep on seeing road construction on the highways year after year? I mean it. The same road, the same highway can't seem to last a year or two without these guys in the yellow or orange vests laying down more tar and delaying your commute. Frankly, it's my belief that roads can be made to last. That in the modern age of technology, the materials are available to make a road that could be laid down and be pothole-free for a man's lifetime. If the Romans could make a road that could last thousands of years, why can't we do an eighth or a quarter as well? And I think you know the reason. It's called planned obsolescence. Nothing keeps business in the state of government going than another contract. The Romans made things to last. Some of the names are the Aurelian Way, the Domitian Way, the Gantian Way, roads that spread out and increased Roman power. These roads weren't just in the Italian peninsula itself, but throughout the empire. Roman engineers plotted direct routes using embankments, bridging, and filling in depressions and even tunnels. As emperor, you have to decide what you want to leave behind for the citizens to remember you. Interestingly enough, the most exacting and detailed record was left by Augustus, and he wrote his accomplishments on his own tomb. Now, I won't read you the whole thing, but I will give you some fragments of it. If you want to know how to be a good emperor, try to recreate a few of the following achievements. The following has been edited for time. At age 19, I raised an army on my own initiative and my own expense. As for those that murdered my father, I drove them into exile and avenged their crimes through legitimate tribunals and I defeated them twice in battle. Around 500,000 Roman citizens served under oath to me. 300,000 of these men, when their term of service expired and I assigned each of them land or gave them money as a reward for military service. I captured 600 ships. I celebrated two ovations, three triumphs. I was hailed imperator 21 times. I turned down the dictatorship that was offered to me. I was triumvir for the restoration of the Republic for ten consecutive years. I was Pontifex Maximus Arger, member of the Board of Fifteen for overseeing sacrifices. I brought back many exemplary practices of our ancestors. I handed out 300 sesterci to each of the Roman plebes in accordance to the will of my father. As consul for the 11th time, I made 12 distributions of grain to the Roman people. 
In the 22nd year of the tribunal power, when I was counsel for the 12th time, I gave 60 denarii apiece to 320,000 of the urban plebes. I aided the bank, the civil bank, four times with my own money. I paid 170 million of my own money into the military bank. I built the Curiae and the Colonium next to it, and the Temple of Apollo on the Palatine with its porticos, the Temple of the Divine Julius, the Leprechaun, the Portico in the Circus Flaminius. I established military colonies in Africa, Sicily, Macedonia, both Spain, Asia, Syria, Gaul. I recovered many military standards. The following kings came to me as supplicants. In my six and seven consulships, after I extinguished the civil wars, I transferred the Republic from my power to the control of the Roman Senate. Well, that was a portion of it. He rebuilt temples, theaters, and aqueducts, and spent untold fortunes on theatrical spectacles, gladiatorial and athletic events, wild beast hunts, sea battles, and gifts to colonies. He saved towns destroyed by fires, earthquakes, and he distributed money to friends and senators. The question was, Augustus found Rome as brick and left it marble. How will you leave it? I'm going to stand back here while you answer the Senate. Good luck. The questions are finished. You're asked to wait in the anteroom while the Senate makes up its mind. I follow you out. You and I notice a light rain is falling, and you and I listen to the sound of water echo through the hall as we wait for the Senate's answer. The bronze door creaks open and a clerk peeks out to see if you're still there. He steps out and raises both arms as if in homage and approaches you cautiously. Hail Caesar! He shouts, his voice echoing off the ceiling. The Senate has decided in your favor. Well, you stand there not believing what you are hearing. This is a dream. It's a mad dream. Caesar! Again with that word. Give us a moment to prepare. Give us just a little more time to divine the will of the gods. We shall call you into the chamber when the time is ready. It is there the Senate will declare you emperor. You are about to inherit the world and to decide the fate of millions of lives. You can make war, kill, dance, and take whatever you want. Any woman is yours. Any man or nation shall have to bend to your will if you can dream it. The slave clerks will make it happen. If you want your life to be a sexual fantasy to a mythological tableau for your pleasure, it will happen. You look at the Senate door, and then you look at the door that is open to the courtyard, which leads out to the rain outside. And like any good intelligent person, you step into the rain. Let them find someone else. I knew you were an intelligent person. I follow behind. If we hurry, we can get to the time machine and get back home for lunch.
Well, that concludes episode six of Ancient Rome Refocused. And what's more, it concludes season one. Season two will begin in March of 2011, where we'll have a new episode. I want to do a shout out to Ronan Brennan, Justin McDonald, and Mark Schaus. Mark, by the way, has a podcast on iTunes called Russian Rulers History. I invited Mark on board, Ancient Roman Focus, to talk about the similarities between the Roman emperors and the Russian czars. It should be an interesting show. I want to thank Odin's son for his entries on Facebook. He has recommended a book called Legionary, the Roman Soldier's Unofficial Manual. That You may have heard me mention it in today's podcast. He writes... It's set during the reign of Trajan and is centered around the fact that you, the reader, is just joining the Legion. He says it's a fascinating read, and it, it is. So take a look at it. I want to welcome Fred Keish. Check out Mr. Keish's website at theeternalgoldenbraid.blogspot.com. If you're new to Ancient Rome Refocus, check out my previous podcast here on the show. We have traveled back to 51 BC to see what it's like to live back then, look closely at Spartacus to decide if he was a hero or a brigand, studied the purpose of the Roman triumphs, and looked at the play Ajax by Sophocles and how it relates to soldiers today and their suffering with PTSD. I've had a very good time doing season one. I think you've all been great, and uh, let's hear from you over the next couple of months. Ancient Rome Refocus will be back, and... I'd like to end the show by thanking my wife, Nancy, for her voiceovers. She's been delightful and quite a good sport in providing her talents. You're listening to Ancient Rome Refocused. If you enjoy being challenged, go to our blog, ancientromerefocused.org, and join others discussing today's topic, ancientromerefocused.org, with host Rob Kane. History for the Brave.